Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview. My guest today is Michael Levy, composer for Ancient Instruments. Michael has been a longtime friend of the podcast. He has generously donated many of his songs for me to use on the show, and I am incredibly grateful for his support. I sat down with Michael via Zoom to discuss his compositions for ancient Egyptian instruments. Michael plays a variety of instruments which are replicas of actual objects found in Egyptian tombs. As you will see, Michael is knowledgeable, personable, and very enthusiastic about his craft. Along the way, he also breaks down some of the songs which he has written, and explains the inspirations and how he approached them. It's a wonderful interview, and I hope you will enjoy. Hello, Michael Levy. Welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, and thank you very much for joining me. The pleasure is mine. It's a real privilege to talk about uh, my music and uh, how it connects, hopefully, with the ancient world. Well, it's a privilege to talk to you, and I personally am very grateful for the many hours of music you've allowed me to use free on the podcast, and I'm sure everyone listening is deeply grateful for the lovely songs. So thank you from myself and everyone. That's great. So, Michael, you've got a new album out called The Ancient Egyptian Lyre. And some of the pieces on this are composed with, of course, replica instruments based on artifacts we have from ancient Egypt. Um, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit, just for a moment, about how this, this, new, this new album, this new composition of songs uh, came to be. Uh, yeah, um, well, for many years, I wanted to get hold of an authentic lyre um, from the ancient Near East. And I did a bit of research and I found out that, yes, there was actually surviving lyres from ancient Egypt. Um, in particular, the one preserved in Leiden, which dates back to around 1500 BC, and it miraculously survives. And with a surviving uh-huh. instrument, the fascinating thing is you have the actual dimensions of the instrument. Mm. Now, for, since 2014, I've had the pleasure of collaborating with um, some modern lyre makers in Greece called Lutherios. And um, since it was approaching my 50th birthday, I thought, what could I do for my 50th birthday? Let's get let's, let's a <laughs> custom-built lyre. So I sent them all the details um, about the Leiden lyre. And sure enough, they um, created this wonderful replica um, to the exact same dimensions as the um, extant lyre preserved in Leiden. Wow, fantastic. That's quite a birthday present. <laughs> Does this album follow from that particular instrument? Is it? Are they all composed with this piece? Uh, yes, every single track um, was recorded. I, whenever I have a new lyre, I like to sort of demonstrate it in a permanent form of recording, um, mm. which I think is the best way to catalogue the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got many, many albums based across ancient Egyptian and uh, Near Eastern and Greek and Roman 
instruments as well. Is there a particular instrument you find yourself coming back to a lot? I know you've used the harp and also the lyre and um, variations on those. Is there one that you particularly find suitable for you? Um, I feel very comfortable playing a 10-string lyre. Um, mm. And it doesn't matter what type. I mean, this custom model of the lead and lyre I had um, Lutherius make with 10 strings. Um, I think the original had a, a slightly less, but I find that a little bit too limiting. And um, the funny thing is, 10 strings, um, that's the same number of strings as ha- was on the biblical lyre. And this goes back to my interest in playing the lyre in the first place, because it was okay. the biblical Levites way mm. back in the Temple of Jerusalem that actually played biblical lyres, the Kinor and the Nevel. And mm. as well as the biblical text that, that describes this, you also have the writings of Flavius Josephus, the first mm. century Jewish historian who actually saw the witness, the, who actually witnessed the Levites play these lyres in the Temple of Jerusalem. So for me, playing the lyre, especially a ten-string lyre, is extreme roots music. <laughs> Fair enough, too. And what are the what are the challenges of playing an instrument with that many strings? Is it do you find is it more variable or is it more complicated or both? It's a strange thing. Um, Compared to a harp, a harp has obviously many, almost the same number of notes as a piano, mm. um, whereas a lyre, you'd think it'd be very limiting, but um, the, the beauty is the limitation. Um, in fact, the 10 strings, I find, are analogous to the 10 decades maximum in, on average that we have as our human lifespan. Okay, mm-hmm. we only have 10 decades maximum, approximately, but we can do infinite things with those 10 decades, and it's like the same with the lyre strings. You can do infinite, there's literally infinite possibilities that you can create from this rather minimalistic sound. And the and for example, the advantage of having less strings than a harp, you can do these wonderful things, these... Um, we actually block certain strings and strum. So you have almost like two instruments at once. And and this style of playing called block and strum is still practiced today throughout the African continent um, where the lyre presumably arrived via trade routes with ancient Egypt and is still being played happily today. For example, um, that lyre, I think I mentioned, the the, the, um, Eritrean kra, um, which has this block and strum technique. Oh, sounds fascinating. So do you intend to continue exploring instruments from uh, Afri- the various countries of Africa as well? Uh, yeah, well, the, the Egyptian lie, obviously, Egypt is a part of the African continent. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, this is my first experience of playing, well, really, a, an ancient African lyre. Um, mm. And just and the, the, to do with the timbre of the instrument as well, um, I actually asked Lutherios to come up with a bridge very similar to the African lyre still played today. Um, and the difference between, say, a guitar bridge, which is very um, sharp and produces a very clear tone, if you listen to any African lyre still played today, and a good example of this is the Ethiopian, Ethiopian Begina, a 10-string lyre, a bass lyre, it has this wonderful buzzy timbre because the bridge on a lyre is basically, well, African lyres, they just use usually a piece of reed or something. Um, so it's, instead of a sharp bridge, the, the strings can freely sort of bounce up um, and, res- and, and buzz, I should say, on top of the bridge. But it creates this wonderful sitar-like ancient exotic timbre. And that's what I had done with this lyre. It has this buzzy timbre, which I found very evocative, completely different than a modern harp, and much more interesting, to be honest. <laughs> and you mentioned in um, a conversation we had that you'd you'd uh, develop some of your compositional techniques for this uh, 
instrument based on musicians playing in Port Said on the Red Sea? Uh, yes, um, the tune I'm going to talk about, um, the Holy Nile, mm. the actual melody, um, I got the idea from it after listening to musicians from Port Said um, who play the Sim Simya. Now, the Sim Simya is um, an amazing lyre, again, one of these wonderful African lyres, and it goes back, it's obviously been modified a lot for the, for, for the modern player, because um, mm. the modern version has metal strings, originally it would right. have had foot, but it, it actually goes back to pharaonic times, the actual basis of this lyre and lots of the playing techniques I use um, you know, do lots of tremolo sounds um, which again is something wonderful you can do with the lyre which you can't really do with a harp mm. um, so yeah it's this very distinctive tremolo timbre um, I do quite a bit of as well as and what is a what is a tremolo timbre for, for those of us who aren't familiar uh, well yeah basically like a mandolin um, this I've got the actual lyre here um, <laughs> so just, I'm not sure how it's going to sound like through this little microphone, but like, for example. A bit like a mandolin. Mm. That, that's, that's the beauty, again, of so few strings, but so many different timbres. It's like, mm. um, it's a bit like playing a church organ. Rather than <laughs> when you improvise on a lyre, instead of adding lots of different notes like a jazz pianist, you just simply change the timbre. And there's so many ways of doing this, and I demonstrate this throughout the album. Besides tremolo, um, which we just demonstrated there, you have this wonderful block and strum, which I mentioned. Um, that's basically where I'm blocking specific strings and um, strumming either with my fingernails or a plectrum. Mm -hmm. It sounds a bit like an Appalachian dulcimer. It's like a strum drone of which I strum the melody. Um, other things you can do, um, you can play these wonderful harmonics. Um, very, uh, or harmonics together even. Just, just take my headphones off a minute so I can hear what I'm doing. Or you can do these hammered on sounds, which are really very strange sounding, um, something like this. And the actual instrument itself um, has holes in the bottom. The actual original instrument has holes in the bottom. You can actually create wah-wah effects. Um, I don't know what this is going to sound like through the little microphone, but something like this. <laughs> so again, it's like a little bit like playing a church organ. Um, mm. You can vary the timbre so much that it's like playing about five instruments at the same time. Wow, that sounds very versatile and um, nuanced. Excellent. So you used this lyre to compose a piece of music that you wanted to talk about specifically, which is called The Holy Nile. And I thought we could maybe go through this the song and sort of discuss some of the influences on its composition and how it came about. So perhaps uh, what I'll do is I'll um, play the first 30 seconds of this song and then maybe you can uh, tell us, take us through what went on with this. Yeah, certainly.
Okay, so how did this how did this musical piece come about? What was the inspiration? Uh, yeah, um, this piece was actually commissioned. Um, it was actually con- contacted on my website by um, the Egyptian film score composer, Reman Sakar. And he wanted to include it on his album, um, his 2017 album, The Epic of Thebes, Story of Passion and War. A very Mm. interesting concept album. It was based on the um, Achmosis who who liberated Egypt from the Hyksos. And it was quite um, an orchestral film score type sound, but he wanted to have an authentic um, liar in it so that's why he contacted me hmm. so yeah this gave me the inspiration to do something really interesting because I've never had my tunes orchestrated before so I really wanted to see what this would sound like hmm. so in thinking of an actual melody um, I got, sort of went back to basics and think okay although the, the Egyptians had a form of um, musical notation which is called um, coronomy uh, which is in fact still practiced in the Coptic church this uses hand gestures um, to donate, donate specific pictures. Although the ancient mm. Egyptians do, did have this system of musical notation, sadly no actual Egyptian melodies survive unlike the music of ancient Greece. Mm. Um, so I had to be inventive. And so I listened I went back to Egyptian folk music, um, particularly mm-hmm. Simsimia players of Port Said. Mm. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, and... Uh, yeah, this wonderful simsimia, this is basically an instrument that has evolved from pharaonic times and it's still played to the present day. It has all these wonderful tremolo sounds and regarding the actual mode, the, the scale used, it has this wonderful um, intense melodic minor sound. Um, so that's how I just decided which mode, which sort of scale to play it in and the sort of general style of playing. So basically, the tune is based on traditional Egyptian folk music. But like all folk music, folk music has often ancient origins. So there might be a little bit of the modern folk music that goes way back to pharaonic times and particularly played on uh, a lyre. Um, This sort of almost transforms a folk melody into something that sounds ancient. But again, Mm -hmm. the the, the actual melody, although it is an original composition, in short, Mm -hmm. was um, based on some of the traditional folk songs I heard from Port Said and using some of the one of the main mo- the musical scales that I heard throughout um, the, the musical listened to from this particular region, region of Egypt. So with that in mind when you were when you were writing it and composing it was there a particular story in your head or an image or a, an idea that was running through the piece? I just wanted to play um, a kind of um, Oh, a kind of evocative, um, slow type. Oh, oh, how can I describe? <laughs> Hard to explain, it? I guess. Yeah, it's in the music, yeah, isn't it? Usually, it is. Yeah, usually when I start off, I don't sit there with a pen and paper, um, like hmm. Mozart or Beethoven or something. I like to develop tunes organically, and basically how I do that, I just like. Basically, I jam, I just develop mm. melodic ideas, record them, listen back to them, think, oh, that works, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I'll get um, the structure of a melody. And I find that the initial, the initial final result, I should say, sounds more spontaneous rather than someone who's labored with a pen and paper and it sounds very meticulous mm-hmm. and very constrained sometimes, I find, if I listen to 
some classical music found it very constraining whereas i like my tunes to sound like improvisations and most of them do sound a bit like improvisations because that's how they start off um organically as an actual improvisation but which i listen back to and add structure after that and then re-record the results so if you were to play a piece like this live would you um play it relatively consistently or would you improvise and add flourishes here and there as you go um i usually play i usually start off with a basic structure um but that's the thing with improvisation mm. um you can't just play any random notes because then it sounds like a, <laughs> um, a five-year-old kid bashing on the piano keyboard Mm. Um, the human brain um, prefers structure, so I always start off with basic structure, so that usually an A theme, a B theme, mm. and then anything after that, um, I can add Lincoln sections, I can change the timbre, like I mentioned before, like a pipe organ by playing harmonics, or how I pluck the strings or strum the strings, and that's how I, that's how I create the, um, the variation in the improvisation, more, more by changing the timbre, but I always start off with a, um, a firm structure. We will return with part two of my conversation with Michael in just a moment. First, we need to take a quick break. See you soon. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Okay, so uh, let's let's dive in a little bit deeper into this uh, this liar that you had. Um, use, that you made a replica of, or you commissioned a replica of, and um, mm. let's talk about the object itself. So, for those who aren't familiar, I mean, I'll I'll put pictures of this object on the on the website. But what is what is so significant about the the Leiden lyre? Well, what's significant about it is um, <laughs> it exists, it survived um, mm. over like almost three thousand five hundred years. Um, the reason you can sort of have a guesstimate at its actual age is because, thankfully, there are some depictions um, of very similar instruments which can be dated. And you can date the age of the instrument by the angle of the yoke. That's like the, the crossbar at the top. Um, okay. And um, the, the, the earlier forms of this lyre in Egypt, um, the, the, the angle of the yoke, the crossbar, is quite slanted in comparison to the sound box, whereas the later okay. ones, um, the, the angle of the yoke is, um, becomes more parallel. So right. you can tell that's one of these quite early lyres. And by the archaeological sort of record, as far as ancient Egyptian art goes anyway, when these lyres start appearing in the artwork, they first mm. appeared around um, 1550 BC, around the mm -hmm. time of Amenosis III, um, okay. sorry, sorry, no, um, they, sorry, I'll rephrase that. <laughs> they start, first started appearing around 1550 BC, then, mm -hmm. then disappear from the artwork 
from around 1300 BC, which was the time of Amenosis III. Right. Um, there's quite a lot of alterations until the end of the Amarna period. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, it was this type of lie was seen 18 times on walls of the high officials in the necropolis of Thebes, usually mm. by women playing these lies at banquets. Mm. And does this does this particular liar have sort of descendants later through Egyptian history, or is it isolated to the New Kingdom? It's basically. Um, from the New Kingdom, but how it ended up in Egypt is speculation, but um, since there was none before the time of around 1550 BC or whatever, all you see is harps, so very similar lyres appear throughout the, throughout the ancient Near East, particularly uh, Canaanite lyres, so just, it just might be the case that these lyres were first introduced into Egypt during the, the, the reign of the Canaanite Hyksos. That's mm. going to make sense. Um, sure. Because obviously they would have brought their own culture into Egypt. And what's, more imp what's the most important aspect of human culture? Their music. And um, <laughs> yeah, and that's probably how these very Canaanite looking lyres ended up in Egypt in the first place through the Canaanite Hyksos. And so this, this liar, this specific liar, the physical object, also seems to have an interesting um, after history. So can you t walk us through a little bit about what, what happened to this liar later and what's significant about, about that? Uh, yeah, I certainly will. Um, just a very brief details about how it was actually discovered. Um, it was, I think it was out in the 1820s, some guy called... Um, Piccini, as somebody I can't quite pronounce his name, hmm. um, he, he he sort of dug it up, um, found it in Thebes. It wasn't a true archaeological, it wasn't sadly a fully documented archaeological discovery. He was finding no, I can imagine sell on to different things. But um, the most interesting thing about the lyre itself is the there is an inscription on the back of the original in, the original instrument, and the fascinating thing about this inscription, you can tell from the style of the basically the grammar and the words used, that it dates to an entirely different era, almost a thousand years later after these, the actual original lie was built, which is absolutely wow. amazing. Uh, so yeah, basically someone had found this 18th dynasty liar, which mm. was already more than a thousand years old, scribbled this poem on the back of it, and perhaps they had it buried with them in their tomb shafts when, it, when they die. That's the amazing thing. And, then, and fascinatingly, you can actually translate um, the, the text of this song. And it's very similar to an ancient Greek song. It's the, the sort of same ilk as um, eat, drink and be merry now because you'll be dead tomorrow. So make the most of life while it lasts. Um, and here's the actual translation of the thing. Um, oh, ye are anointed with ointment. Great and young rejoice. Come, follow a fortunate day. Um, there is no fate of somebody's name mentioned, um, which you can't distinguish. Um, there's no fate of this person coming back and no living again. Kiss much again, again, and again. Rejoice. Kiss much again, again, and again. <laughs> so the text of this song, um, according to the grammar, is probably, probably no later than around 300 BC, um, almost like the Ptolemaic period, um, mm. or even the Roman period, in fact, of Egypt. Um, and it's very similar to um, an ancient Greek drinking song, the Epitaph of Sikolos, which has exactly the same sentiment. And the words of that are, um, while you live shine, have no grief at all, for life exists but a short while, and time demands its end. Exactly the same sentiment. And in fact, almost from the same period as the Epitaph of Sikolos, the earliest it could be was around 200 BC, exactly this sort of um, um, Ptolemaic or Roman period of um, Egyptian history. 
How fascinating. So would we imagine that this liar was uh, buried in a tomb and then acquired by someone a thousand years later? It'd be hard to imagine it kicking around for a thousand years and staying in good condition. <laughs> That's a fascinating thing. I mean, it must have been a very important instrument to have survived more or less, in more or less intact to what um, a thousand years until, until like 3000, sorry, until about 300 BC when this poem is wrote on the back of it. Mm. But um, obviously in Egypt, the climate is so much different, very desiccated and dry, but it was, but it was in lying around somewhere. It, it might have been recycled from someone else's tomb. I mean, they did that quite a bit, mm. I believe, in Egypt, recycled mm -hmm. certain artifacts and lyres are part and parcel of this celebration of life because music is a celebration of life. So what's the perfect thing to put in your tomb? Looking at looking at pictures of this lyre and sort of the artistic depictions of it, it seems to be held in kind of an unwieldy way, like a, a box in front of you. Is it is it a heavy object? Is it difficult to hold for periods of time? No, it's uh, quite a light object. And the way they actually hold these lyres is um, they hold them horizontally. So instead of the arms um, sticking up near your chin, mm. um, the, the further away. And um, there's a very good example of, um, I actually used it for the album cover of um, this a very, very similar looking lyre from a Theban tomb, from Theban tomb number 38. And I'm not very really good mm -hmm. at pronouncing these Egyptian names. The tomb of Zesekaras, oh dear, um, <laughs> Zesekarasoneb or something. Um, basically, it's an 18th dynasty tomb dating back to around um, 1400 BC. Um, it has this rather famous depiction of this lovely looking Egyptian lady and she's holding it horizontally as these lyres were meant to be played. That's why there's these sound holes on the, at the bottom of the thing. Now the sound holes make no sense if you hold it upright because then it'd be on your lap. But if mm. you're playing these standing up ceremonially then the sound holes are at the back projecting the sound out of the back of the instrument. Yeah. So yeah, to kind of rewire my brain a bit, getting used to playing these lyres um, horizontally but I find that the actual block and strum technique works so much better when you actually hold them that way. Um, yeah, so a fascinating, yeah, fascinating instrument with a fascinating history. It is. And what is, uh, what is your replica made of? What type of wood? Um, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, because <laughs> um, the, the, these wonderful people in Greece made it from the woods they had. Um, mm. The actual original sort of wood that they would have used in ancient Egyptian times, more a sort of reddish wood. I think it's called tamarisk or something. Mm -hmm. But um, that obviously is not native to Greece. So <laughs> the wood is very nice quality, but um, I don't think it's exactly cut out of an Egyptian log, so to speak. So, mm. But like anything, um, you can't ever reconstruct even an instrument. You can only sort of recreate it to the best sure. ability that you can. But the dimensions are pretty much the same as the original instrument mm. and the, the playing techniques I use um, but they're more in more um, historically inspired I suppose than in historically informed because there isn't any there is no reference anywhere in any ancient Egyptian literature I know that how these 
instruments are actually meant, how, how the techniques to play them. These can only be inferred from how the literally inferred by places where the lyre is still being played today. Um, and mm. that, that, of course, is throughout the African continent. And that shows particularly this block and strum style, um, the use of tremolo, the Egyptian sim simia. My style basically is a conglomerate of all the things I'm able to infer, plus my own imagination and creativity, because when you try and get too far into this reconstruction, it sounds all very dry and academic. <laughs> I mean, the, sure. whole pur- the, whole, the whole purpose of my music is to literally carry on where the mm. ancients left off with, a, with what I call a new ancestral music. It's mm-hmm. um, kind of new age music on steroids basically <laughs> it's like it's taking um recreated ancient instruments using the same sort of ancient modes um intonations but using it for new compositions mm-hmm. um yeah so literally my mission is to carry on where the ancients left off fair enough then that's really all that we can hope for in the modern day um <laughs> but you know that's a that's an admirable path and we're all very grateful to you for following that so I'm very grateful for you to listen. <laughs> okay, so Michael, that brings me to the end of my questions. So thank you very much for sharing this information with us. It's been absolutely fascinating. And thank you for coming on the show. Uh, the pleasure is mine. And say, if anyone out there wants to hear more of my music, it's available from all the major digital music platforms, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon. That's my plug out the way with. <laughs> Absolutely. And I will provide some links if anyone wants to follow those to various websites. Uh, do you have, do you have any uh, information to share on your next project? Any ideas on what you might like to do next? That all depends on being inspired by the ancient pantheon of gods. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> or if, indeed, if anyone out there has any suggestions for anything different, I'd like to hear. Sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, okay. Thank you very much for joining me, Michael. And I hope the gods continue to smile on you and your work. And not just the Egyptian gods, all of the gods to whom you have composed music. I, live, I can live with that. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Dominic. Thanks Pleasure. very much, Michael. Cheers. Many thanks to Michael for coming on the History of Egypt podcast. If you'd like to hear more of Michael's compositions, follow the link in the episode description. Also, we have a brief epilogue, in which Michael discusses a little bit more detail about one of his favourite instruments, and a wonderful collaboration which he enjoyed. Speaking of the um, buzzing timbre of my replica Ancient Egyptian Lyre, in track six, Ancient Egyptian Dance, the buzzing timbre of my lyre was perfectly complemented um, by the magnificent rhythmic, exotic African rhythms um, produced by um, the Obacano playing of um, my friend Nick Vest. Um, the Obacano is a a really large bass register lyre still played today um, through Kenya and uh, Nick has been mastering the Obacano for quite a few years now 
Um, Nick is my um, online liar student, and uh, back in 2019, he actually lugged this massive big liar all across the Atlantic on his way from America just to jam with me, and it was an amazing experience, and um, such an amazing experience. I wanted to preserve it for posterity, so now, thankfully, it is. Um, a bit more about the Obicano. Um this buzzing timbre is thanks to the, the bridges, which are actually just little um, a group of reeds on which the strings rest and, and sort of freely vibrate against. And um, an, an interesting part of the rustic construction of the Obicano, the reeds are actually um, fixed in place with beeswax. An amazing thing. But um, I found that the sound of the Obicano sort of it sounded almost like an ancient Egyptian ensemble of um, the sort of lutes and things they must have they, they played back then. But uh, yeah, the, the combination of buzzing timbres is quite otherworldly. Thanks again, Nick. Michael is talking about a song called Ancient Egyptian Dance from his album The Ancient Egyptian Lyre. Here is a preview. <laughs> For some quick mental health facts, let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. 